right? So exciting to see everybody here. Um, if you grabbed a, a folder inside, there's, I'm just going to go through the, the contents real quick. Um, there's an itinerary. We're going we're gonna to have three sessions. Each session is going to be about uh, a half hour long. Um, you, we'll have an opportunity at the end of each session and the end of the, the class to do any questions and answers. Um, if I don't have the answer, I will look for it and, and email you. So, but I, hopefully I can answer most of the questions that we have. Um, and so this other thing, there's stuff in mine that's not in yours. There's a couple of articles that I printed out, um, one from John Piper um, about why he believes in the resurrection. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, historical accuracy or why we can trust that the resurrection actually happened in the second session. And also there's a really interesting article by Wayne Jackson uh, called The Authenticity of the New Testament Documents. And I used uh, both, both of those articles um, when I was preparing. And I just think there's uh, some depth in there and some, and some stuff that both of those guys kind of bring up and look into that I'm not going to, to touch on this morning. Good morning. Um, also, there's a handout in there that looks like this. And so we're just gonna we're gonna work through this. There's gonna be some time for some some filling some stuff out. All right, it's gonna be kind of class-like. We're gonna try to learn something this morning, and so we're just gonna work through that. And then the very last page is my is my references. And so if you there's a there's I referenced a bunch of different uh, uh, articles online, and then uh, some books that I use that I think are gonna be really beneficial. You know, in two hours, or under two hours, we can really only scratch the surface uh, of this topic. Um, and there is a lot of incredible information that's available for us out there if we dig into it. So hopefully this kind of um, helps you as you dig into the, this topic. And we're going to be talking about, about, in session one, not only what is the gospel and how do we share that, you know, how do we... How do we uh, tell somebody what this good news is, but in session two, we're going to be talking about the historicity of it, how it historically accurate it is, and then in session three, we're going to talk about how is this supposed to impact our lives, you know, now that we are saved, you know, now that we believe that Jesus actually rose again, what, how does that impact our lives? So, before we do anything else, I would ask you, let's pray. Let's pray. That's what, I didn't have that on my notes, but... I'm just going to do that anyway. So, Father God, we just invite you. We just invite you to come and fill this place. Thank you, Father. God, we're so grateful that you would send your son, Jesus, to come and to, to humbly be born as a man, to live, to be persecuted, to die, to be buried, and to be rose, risen again so that we could be restored into right relationship with you. God, we are so grateful for that. God, and I just pray that today you would help us to get a, a better grasp of, of the truth, God, the, a better grasp of what your plan was, what your intention was, what the gospel is, how we can live it out 
and how we can be salt and light in this earth, Father God. How we can bring you glory in every word we say, God, every act that we do, Father God. And so we just surrender this time to you, God. I just surrender my plan and my agenda to you and pray that you would come, that you would speak your truth into our hearts and our minds today. You are worthy. You are worthy, Father God. Amen. Amen. All right, so before I get started, I would like you, let's take a couple of minutes and just write down what the good news is. If you, if somebody said, Aaron, what, what's the, what is the gospel? What's the good news? I just want you to write down you, what your understanding is, and then uh, it won't be graded. We won't, we won't pass them around to see what other people wrote. We're just, if this is just for you to kind of go, where am I at? And we're going to see, um, see how, how your understanding and my understanding meet when we get through session number one. So, and you only have a few lines there, so try to keep it succinct. You can use the back of the page, I guess. Give you another minute here. Like most of us are done. Laura's writing a thesis. So as you're, as you're writing your understanding uh, of the good news or the gospel, I think it can quickly be, get this idea that, man, this is really big. There's, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. It's hard to, to sum the gospel up in a, in a couple of sentences. And so what I want to do this morning is try to touch on what are the, the most essential, the most important aspects of the gospel or the good news. And often when Christians refer to the gospel, we're referring to, and gospel actually means good news, and it means that um, they're referring to that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might become the children of God through faith alone in Christ alone. 
right? And we're going to start this morning kind of discussing this aspect of the gospel. And Jack Hayford says, I, I really like what he says, you know, that the core of the gospel is the joyous good news of salvation of Jesus Christ, right? And that we all understand that. That is the joyous, exciting good news that Jesus came to set us free from the law of sin and death, that we could be restored into right relationship with the Father. But I think that this is really just the the tip of the iceberg, and the reality of our individual salvation draws us into this deeper and fuller story of God that has been taking place through all of history and in all of the creation, in all of the cosmos. And the fact is that when we believe and we receive the good news, we are brought into something that's much bigger and much better than merely going to heaven when we die. And I touched on this uh, a couple weeks ago here uh, on Sunday morning at New Day. So actually that, that teaching and this teaching and what I'm teaching tomorrow um, definitely have some f- similar threads as I've prepared all of these things in recent history. So... But So when we talk, uh, or when people talk about going to heaven when they die, I think that they are, what they're trying to articulate, when they, maybe they just don't know how exactly to say it, but there's this idea that through Jesus, we have been made right with God. We have been saved from sin's penalty and power with the glorious promise that this will one day result in the glorious reign of Christ on earth with sin, death, and Satan as vanquished foes. Right? And so there's this big idea of what's going on, but we kind of distill it down into, I'm going to go to heaven, which is, which is tr- in, true-ish, somewhat true. Um, but I think that these people have not, they just haven't been trained or taught the full breadth of the reality of the gospel and salvation. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to cover that whole breadth of, of salvation and, and uh, being restored and what all that means. But I think that I've, I've learned a lot over the, the last couple years, and I'm really excited about, about digging into it and learning what, what can be learned. Um, about a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years ago, Anthony Davis and I took a class at, um, at Cornerstone in our, in our associates program. It was a, what class was it? I think it was just, it was kind of this kind of an overview of, of the four Gospels. And it was, it was really good. And we watched these videos called The Life of Jesus. And he just brought forth all of this historical evidence that we can use to step into uh, and we can kind of launch from our, our faith. Okay? So it, and when I got saved... 20 years ago, something like that, in, in this church. My, my mom would say that I was always saved because I was, I was reformed. And so I was baptized when I was a baby, so I was good. I could do anything I wanted. But I think that I was really saved, you know, about 20 years ago here uh, at when it was Redemption Christian Assembly. And God just radically got a hold of me. Um, I've told the story many times that, you know, I was in the bank robbery. Or no, it wasn't a bank robbery. It was the Little Caesars got held up at gunpoint, and it was, it was very, very traumatic. And I went through a very difficult season. But in the midst of that season, God really showed up. And I was at New, uh, 
Redemption Christian Assembly one Sunday morning with Amber, mostly because I, I, don't, I don't know why. Why was I there? I didn't want to make Laura mad. I wanted her to like me. Galvation. Galvation, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend that, but it did work in that, in that scenario. So, so I'm there, and I'm thinking about this robbery, and they're, they're doing communion. And I believe it was Pastor Ken was like, if you... Are, have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you should not, or you cannot, or don't take communion. And I never, it was, how do I say, there's this idea, it never really crossed my mind that am I saved or am I not saved, but at that moment I realized that I wasn't living for Jesus. I was not, you know, I'd not given my life to God, and I knew about Jesus, I knew about the gospel, I'd grown up in the church, my dad was a pastor, I understood all the kind of the head knowledge of it, that, of basically. And, and yet I was living my own life. I was doing my own thing. Um, I can't get into all that I was doing because my kids are sitting at that table. It's right there. And so, uh, and so, but that morning, you know, the, the spirit just came on me and I was just like, I need to make this right. Because I, I knew that if that guy would have pulled the trigger, you know, when that guy had his gun to my head, if he would have pulled the trigger for whatever reason, I just didn't know. I, maybe my mom was right. Maybe my mom wasn't right. But I knew that I wasn't living for God, and I knew that I needed to know for a fact that when I died that I was going to be uh, in heaven. <laughs> and so, uh, and that was good. And for years, you know, just this, I, you know, I, I knew because the Spirit had revealed it to me. But there's, there's, there's still parts of me that in day-to-day life, I'd be like, oh, man, what if, what if I'm wrong? What if, this is, what if we're just making this up? You know, what if I just want there to be a God? What if I just want Jesus to be real? You know, am I just a Christian because I was luckily born in America? And, you know, then that's what most of us are, you know? And I, I wanted uh, a more solid foundation, all right? And, and so I'm not saying that, you know, the revelation of spirit to spirit was not important. That's incredibly important and incredibly valid. But I was also looking for something that I could, could grab onto, something that I could leap into what seemed to be just this, uh, I was going to say vacuum of faith, but that's not really what it is. Just this idea of, I'm just kind of, all right, Jesus, I'm just trusting you. I'm just leaping out into this, and I'm just expecting that you're going to take care of this. But Fast forward a year and a half, two years ago in this class, we start learning about this historical authenticity, this historicity of the gospel, and that, hey, we can believe that Jesus actually existed. We can believe that he actually said the things that he said. We can believe that he actually did the things that he did. And if that's true, we have to make a decision with that reality, if Jesus is real. And so, for me, it was really significant in I think that that is one of the reasons that I was really excited about teaching this course because I want to try to share, at least in part, to you guys uh, and to the church, you know, that this faith is believable. This faith is rock solid, and we can confidently put our faith in Jesus. And, there, and I was teaching this a little bit at youth group. I'm going long. Um, I was teaching this a little bit at youth group, and there's this sweet, sweet girl um, that was like, I don't, I don't know, can we really look into these, this uh, historical accuracy of the faith? I think that we're just supposed to believe it without having anything 
to hold on to or anything to step from. And I'm just like, oh, that's so sweet. But, I mean, imagine the, the disciples and Paul and the, the followers of Christ would have had more evidence than you and I will ever have. And they still were called to take a step of faith. They were still able to rationalize away the empty tomb and rationalize away the healings of Jesus and all the stuff that he said and did. And, the, you know, and they stood right in front of him and saw him do it. And so it's okay for us to, to look into the historical accuracy and the believability of the gospel. And so that is what we're going to do this morning. All right, and so what we want to do first is look at kind of the... Um, a classic understanding of, of the gospel. If you're going to share the gospel with somebody, it's called the Romans Road. Um, and there's a little handout that we have on the, the spinny mobile thing over here that I believe Tori, Tori made. And it's um, the five things that Christians believe. And there's one in your handout or in your, in your folder. And it's, it just goes through the, the Romans road because it's a really solid way to understand the gospel and to, to latch onto it. So if you want to pull out your, your handout, all right, we are going to, we're going to actually write out the Romans road because I, for me and for some people, writing things helps us to, to learn it. I don't know. Is that a thing? It's a thing. All right, so the first uh, verse in the Romans road is Romans 3.23. I've got it written down somewhere. And so you guys can write this. Romans 3.23 is, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does this say? This says that we've all messed up, right? We all have done things that are not what God has called us to do. This understanding, you know, it demands that we have an understanding or an appreciation of what the word sin means, right? Um, none of us has lived up to the expectations of God's holiness. All of mankind has been tainted by sin. You know, and I was talking to a, a friend of mine who is not a believer, who is the opposite of a believer. I guess that's the same thing, isn't it? Um, and, and he just, he asked me this question about sin. He just, his understanding of what sin was, or that it even existed, was vastly different than my understanding of, of sin. And to him, you know, it just, it was kind of this amorphous, and he understood morality but sin, like the, the fact that he was a sinner, that did not compute with him. And so, you know, going through the Romans road is not always the best way to start um, with, you know, sharing the gospel with somebody. But it's a classic um, understanding of the gospel, and I think it's important that we understand it. So it, you, you have to really, when you're, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're talking to somebody, you have to really be kind of tuned in to what the Spirit is doing. Um, this, this friend of mine, I have been, he's actually in my gaming group. We met at Fanfare Comics and Cards like eight or nine years ago. And we've been, we've been friends for a long time. And, and when he found out that I was a Christian, he, he called me up one day and he's like, never pray for me, 
never talk to me about Jesus. I don't want any of that stuff. I just, you know, I just want to play. We were playing Star Wars miniatures at the time. I think that's the game. Anyway, whatever we were playing. And he's like, I just, I just want to play the games. I like you, but I don't want any of that, any of that stuff. I'm like, all right. I'm like, that's fine with me, you know. Um, I, he didn't know. I didn't tell him. So, and, and so I knew that if I, he was so kind of um, put off by the gospel, by Jesus, that I knew that I, could, I really could not share the gospel with him in words. I could not take him through the Romans road because I never would have seen him again. And so I um, was just his friend. I just loved him, you know, just, we just hung out. And um, what's interesting is probably a month or two ago, he, he called me up and we had the, this conversation, like this half hour conversation. Um, he calls me up and says, Mark, Mark, how do you forgive somebody? And I'm just like, I was like, well, the problem with me being able to answer that is that I'm going to need to talk about Jesus because that's all I've got. And, and, but it ended up being this great conversation. I was able to, to share the gospel with them, starting at forgiveness, starting, you know, with my relationship with God. Not, you know, I didn't start with sin. Uh, we did eventually get there. But I guess what I'm saying is just be careful that not just to jump in with, you're a sinner. Let me share the gospel with you. It might not work. It might work. It might work. might not work. Just hear God on that. Hear God. Uh, so Romans 6.23 is the, is the second verse in the Romans road. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reality is that sin has a consequence, a very serious consequence. It's physical and eternal death. And we all deserve this death because of our sinfulness, right? And because of the gracious gift that God has provided, he has provided a way through his son Jesus Christ for us to have eternal life, all right? And so we're all sinners, and sinners deserve death. But luckily, there's good news. So the third, the third verse in the Romans road is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we all probably know or have heard, you know, we understand that Jesus' death paid the price for our sins. Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' death as the payment for our sins. All right? And he did this while we were still his enemies. We can see this in other places in Romans. We can see this in, in Titus 3, which is a great uh, summation of, of the gospel and this idea that when we were God's enemies, we hadn't done anything. God said, I love that guy. I love this 
creation. I, my heart is to restore this all back to me, right? And God had this plan in motion from the very moment, and possibly before, at the very moment that we see sin entering into creation, right? In, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve um, eat the, the forbidden fruit, we see God coming in in Genesis 3.15, and he says, Eve, you know, your offspring is going to crush the head of the enemy, and the enemy, your head, and you are going to, to bruise his heel. I think that's it. You're going to crush his head, and you will bruise his heel. All right, and so there's this promise from the moment that sin enters into creation that I have a plan, that I am moving toward this creation towards redemption. And that, friends, Genesis 3, took place before you were born. All right? And so this plan of redemption is outside of what you do or don't do, what you say or, or you don't say. He has been passionately moving towards redemption for all of history. And you and I are on the receiving end of that. And we get to be kind of brought into that redemption story. And so, in one sense, it is very intimate. It is very personal. It is about us. He chooses you. He loves you. And he's passionate about you. But in another sense, there is a community that God is looking for a people to be his people. He wants to be the God of a, a community. And that is what he created us for, to live in community. I need to go quicker. Romans, the fourth uh, verse in Romans Road is Romans 10, 9. And it says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, this is amazing. All we have to do is believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. There's nothing, you know, it's not about our sacrifices. It's not about living up to his moral code. It's not about any of that, but just proclaiming, Jesus, you are the Son of God, and I believe that God raised you from the dead. And it's important. It demands that we believe that Jesus was an actual man who actually lived and actually died. It does not say that we need to believe that God exists or that he created everything or that Jesus was a good teacher that revealed the Father or, or anything. It says that we need to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And believing in Jesus' actual historic death and resurrection are mandatory for salvation. And that is... And maybe, maybe it's just me, but there's, I think that there's this the idea and the way we sometimes tell the stories of Jesus, are, it feels similar to the way we tell stories about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or Star Wars or, or whatever it is, you know. And so, you know, our, it's easy just to kind of be like, you know, I believe in the, the idea or kind of this theory that Jesus represents. But there is a a, a physical reality that Jesus was a real man, that he walked on this earth, that he understood the, all the things that we know and see and feel. You know, it's, it, it, it's really amazing to me as I just step into that and realize that I'm, part of me has believed this kind of, kind of weird mythological understanding of who Jesus is, when really... It is a very believable, very real person that was literally, you know, 
murdered and nailed onto a cross so that you and I could be saved. It's really amazing. And so I think that we have to find a good way to, to communicate the story uh, of, the, of the gospel, the story of the Bible, without it coming across as a, as a story, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I, I this is an aside, sometimes I, I, I wonder about those, you know, those cartoony Bibles for, for kids, you know, because they look exactly like all the other cartoony stories that the kids are reading. And, and I, I have them. We share them. It's great. The kids like them. I just, I, I don't know how to do it, but there, as, as parents, there has to be a way to communicate, you know what, Jesus is different than Thomas, the tank engine, you know? And Thomas is also a good guy. Apparently, I, we didn't really watch that. What did we watch? Blue's Clues. He's not like Blue's Clues. All right. Moving on. Mark, you're taking too long. Where, where did we leave off? Oh, now we're on the fifth. I believe. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the issues about the gospel message has to do with how we receive the salvation offered in the gospel. The fact that God offers us salvation as a free gift through faith in Christ is good news beyond description. You know, that's, it's hard to overemphasize the, the, the free gift and the good news of that gift. You know, it's not about what we deserve, like we've mentioned. It's not about keeping the letter of the law. You know, the gift of salvation is a free gift out of which should flow obedience, right? But obedience... Uh, does not bring us into salvation, as we learned pre- earlier on the road, but um, it is important. It should draw us into obedience. And then I believe that that is where, that's the five, the five roads. They're the five from Romans Road that are the most common. I like to include Romans 12, and I won't, in, I really wanted to, I just wrote down Romans 12, 1 through 3. But really, this whole chapter, all right, is like this is the last step, all right? Um, it says in, I'll just read a bit of Romans 12. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. And it goes on. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In this section, it's not always included in the Romans Road, um, but I think that it's really important. In chapter 12 of Romans, we find Paul is transitioning from this kind of theological treaty of the first 11 chapters where he's, you know, he's talking about all these big ideas of salvation and, and grace and, and all these ideas. But then in chapter 12, it says, the first word in chapter, I think in the New King James, is therefore. Therefore. And in the NIV, it's something else. No, therefore. Therefore. All right? So therefore, in 12.1, he's saying that in light of all that I've said up to this point, 
in all of these grand theological ideas, these beautiful pictures of, of restoration and healing and, and, you know, dealing with sin and living new lives and new creations. In light of all that, um, this is what it looks like. This is what being saved looks like. And as we finish the letter to the Romans, Paul says that this gospel, which he's been talking about for 11 chapters, looks like sacrifice. It looks like service to the body. It looks like love. It looks like submission and coming together of the Jewish and the Gentile believers. And so the, the gospel has real practical uh, value for us. You know, Paul wasn't just writing these theological ideas. He was writing these letters to a particular people in a particular place to, to help them to live their lives the way that Christ had emulated, the way that Christ had called them to live. You know, these were not just theological ideas. They were to affect their day in and day out lives. All right? And um, so that, that's why I include chapter 12 in our Romans Romans Road, because it needs to lead somewhere. It can't lead to just bunkering down and hiding, waiting for the world to end so that we can go to heaven, because that might not be the case. All right, anyway, uh, Jack Hayford, I heard Jack Hayford last year at the at Res Life up in Grand Rapids. He was amazing. He's getting older. He's uh, amazing. And, and he says this in one, one of the books of his, he says that this life is the gift our Lord Jesus gave through his dying and rising. Not only that we would be saved and gain heaven, but also that we might be present-day agents of his kingdom, daily touching others with God's grace, love, and power in his name. I love that. We would not just be saved and gain heaven, but we might be present-day agents of his kingdom. And we have been saved for a purpose. We are to live out this gospel in tangible and in powerful ways. And we are called to be the salt and the light. We are to bring this good news, you know, and we're going to talk about this more in the last session, that we are uh, imbued with the power of, of the kingdom of God. And we can bring healing. We can bring restoration. We can bring, you know, all the, the attributes of God and all the attributes of the kingdom to this world right now as we believe the gospel as we we accept it and we receive it and we live it out in our lives and we're going to talk about that more that's just a a tidbit waiting for the future oh i gotta be done all right we're gonna we're gonna go real fast through the gospel in first corinthians because i love the gospel in first corinthians 15 uh, i think graham preached on this a couple years ago and it was really really impactful i bet it's still on the website somewhere it's really, really good. So we're just going to touch on it. Um, and we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, um, a, a definition of the gospel and the historical proof that the central event of the history of all of creation is this gospel. And Paul has been teaching the Corinthian church in this letter about spiritual gifts. He talks about the excellent way of love, um, how to have order in their worship. He is about to explain the certainty of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, and the living hope of all believers. So he's, gonna, he's about to get into some really intense stuff. But before he can do that, he has to make sure that they understand the fundamentals of the faith. 
And the fundamental of the gospel upon which everything else, all these spiritual gifts, the Christian love, the worship, resurrection, and eternal hope is built, is the story of Jesus' resurrection. All right? And so let's, I think that I wrote it out in your handout. There it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And so what I want you guys to do is, I'm going to read through this and underline the word that. Four, there's four that in, the, in this translation, okay? And these are kind of, uh, after every that is one of the kind of four tenets of Paul's gospel, okay? So now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after, you don't have to underline that, that. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, and most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as of one abnormally born. And so just real quickly, um, the first that, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the, scripture, according to the scriptures is a is simple and just this profound statement uh, that our Savior's death, his substitutionary death, uh, was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. All right? And this sacrificial death was prophesied in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and in the, in the Psalms. We see it all the uh, many, many verses uh, about this promise of, of a Redeemer. All right? This promise that the, the death of this Christ, this Messiah, would deal with, with our sins. Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. Now this is incredibly important. I feel like I keep saying things are incredibly important. Uh, so, but they are. There's a lot of really important stuff in here. Um, and so that he was buried uh, proves that he actually was dead. All right? He wasn't unconscious. Um, you know, from the, the pain, some people believe that he just passed out on the cross. You know, the reality is that the Roman guards that oversaw Jesus' crucifixion were professionals. They knew how to make sure people were dead. And the intent of the crucifixion was that he would die. All right? And so these people knew what they were doing. They made sure that the other two criminals that he was crucified with were dead. Jesus was really dead. Um, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures, like we mentioned, testified that Jesus would rise again. We see this in Psalm 16 and other places. It was also foretold by Jesus himself three times in the Gospel of Matthew. And his resurrection was the great proof of his deity and his divine sonship. That's a quote from a gentleman by the name of Prime. Um, and so his resurrection was the great proof of his deity and divine sonship. He was actually dead and he actually was raised again. But how can we know? Because he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, to James, to the apostles, to Paul, Jesus' resurrection 
was not this secretive, this quiet thing. You know, it happened in real time. People knew about it. He appeared to a lot of people. And when Paul was writing this letter, and we're going to talk about this more in the next section, he's like, Jesus really did raise, again, I, you know, here's a bunch of people that saw him, and they're almost all of them, if not most of them, are still alive. And you people reading this letter can go to Jerusalem, and you can ask them what happened. Like, and that's significant. You know, the eyewitness reports are significant, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute. And so this story did not grow like some mythology over the years, all right? It was an actual historical event that really happened, all right? And so the core of the gospel is Jesus Christ. That's, I know that's not breakthrough, uh, but it's incredibly important that when we start telling the story of the gospel— I said that maybe we don't start with sin. Maybe that's not always a great place to start. But we can start with this idea that Jesus Christ was an actual person that actually lived, that actually died, and actually rose again. And we need to deal with that. We need to deal with the repercussions. And his, his resurrection demands that we look at the things that he said and so that we can come into a relationship with Jesus. So that is a quick overview of what the gospel is. We're going to take five minutes, and we're going to come back and talk about uh, why we can believe in the resurrection. Thank you. We must have started late. That's what I'm going with. That, okay, good. I was, I, was, I was preaching in Vandalia last weekend, and I was, I was going long. And so from, from, the, from the pulpit, I was like, I hope it's okay. I'm, I'm going to go a little long. I'm like, it's Vandalia. What are you guys going to do anyway? And I was like, why did I say, like, why did I say that? Like, like, sorry. I love you guys. You're doing great. Let me just wrap this up so you can get to your hunting or whatever. Oh my goodness, so funny. So I always give Cameron a hard time. I'm like, you went five minutes over today. Ooh, Cameron. Judge not, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. They are great. Oh, look at all your notes. Look at you guys rocking and rolling. That's great. Can I read what you wrote for what is the gospel? Whoa, are you okay? Good job. That's great, baby. The lion's dancing? So good. That's right. That's good. Romans Road.
doing good, man. Thank you. The next part's my favorite, so I can't qu go quick through that, but maybe the third session, I'll shorten, I'll shorten that. <laughs> So glad. <laughs> Two hour class. Yeah, don't worry, the next session is going to be super fun. And it's already been like 15 hours. No, it's been 50. You've been here for almost two hours because like, you came early. If you really like it, you could come with me to Vandalia and listen to it again. <laughs> she really wants to soak it all in. <laughs> I could. That would help. All right, so we're going to get started again in just a moment here. <laughs> Hi, Arwen. I haven't actually greeted you. How are you? Hi. Hi. I'm great. How are you feeling? Tired. Tired. You're up at, up at the, the hockey game last night. Yeah. See? Yeah. Is this, is this hockey? This is hockey. Yeah. Does it, do I look yeah, like a hockey? Looks like curling. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a hockey. I got the stick. I got coffee. Oh, okay. Real hockey players don't have coffee. <laughs> there weren't any fights? No, one guy's comment came up that was the rats broke it up. I'm like, come on. Oh. Well, maybe. Well, maybe we could get in a fight here this morning. Aaron and I have some very differing opinions. <clears throat> the tomb wasn't empty. All right, so I uh, let's jump back in. Let's jump in, friends. Why can we believe in the resurrection? All right, and so this morning, um, I don't have time necessarily to go th through all of the kind of the why is it that we can believe there is a creator? Why can we believe that, you know, that this isn't just happenstance? Um, there's actually a really great book that if you really want to dig into it, um, you know, why, you know, can we believe that, that God created the earth? The, the first third of this book by Geisler and Turek, and I'm going to be quoting from them a little bit later, is incredibly well thought out and well written. I kind of uh, apologists about why we can believe in the, tr that you know, it wasn't the Big Bang, or why can we believe that it's not happenstance? So, really good. So this morning, unfortunately, it is, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist oh, by cool. Norman. Anthony has one of those. Yeah. You can steal yeah. it from him. So, that is in my references, yes. Um, excellent, excellent 
book. It covers, I haven't even finished it. I'm only about halfway through it, but I think I've read what I need. Um, <laughs> I got Eric to laugh. That's good. All right, so we're going to, uh, in this class, we're just going to make an assumption that there is a God without going into the proofs. In Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, and day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, the words to the ends of the world. All right? And so that is going to be our proof text for the morning, that, that God exists. That is Psalm 19, 1 through 4. Um, and so this kind of the study of, of the, the revelation of God you know, is called apologetics, and there's a lot of really good information out there. Um, so we're going to assume deism, that there is a God that is created, and, real, well, I guess we're actually going to assume theism, that there is a God who actually cares about us, that is intimately um, knowledge about us and, and is for us, all right? So deism, I guess, would be just that there is a God that created things, but he doesn't really care about us. So, theism. God likes us. All right? Uh, so, we're going to look at the historicity, um, which also, just a fun word to say, that means the historical authenticity of the biblical claims of, of Jesus Christ. All right? And so, one of the significant differences between the biblical claims and the teachings of other religions uh, is that the claims of the Bible are historically verifiable. The events depicted in the Bible took place in public, they took place in datable time, and were recorded by a variety of witnesses. Um, and according to John Dixon, who is another, this is another great book, he talked, uh, this is a book we got from that class, John Dixon, The Life of Jesus, Who He Is and Why He Matters. I mean, this this book, I just, it literally rocked my whole paradigm of how I, I understand Jesus and this historical authenticity of his, his, of his life and his resurrection. Um, and so John Dixon, in, in this book, he says this. Um, I wrote this in your handout. The vast majority of scholars investigating Jesus, whether Christian, Jewish, or atheist, are confident about the following historic details. And so the details that we're about to read, like these are things that pretty much everybody agrees on. All right? Jesus was born during the reign of Emperor Augustus. He grew up to be a famous teacher and healer in Galilee. He called a small group of disciples, scandalized the religious leadership by closely associating with sinners, clashed with the Jerusalem elite over his sharp criticisms of the temple, was arrested tried and crucified by the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate and shortly afterward was declared by his first followers to be the Messiah risen from the dead. And to me that is really incredible that like this stuff everybody agrees on. That even this, the part about that he was a healer like that's just historically verifiable. People believe that he did this Jesus guy, he wandered around. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he was doing. But he was doing some pretty miraculous stuff. Like, we can't even explain all that happened. And as we're going to look at later, yes? When you say historically verifiable, do you mean um, by the historians of the day, like the Jesus, or because of the, 
uh, both. Uh, we're going to talk about um, uh, the, the historical, um, we're going to look at people who wrote about Jesus, like Tacitus, Josephus. Um, there's, in D John Dixon's book, he mentions four different um, ancient historians that, were, that lived very close to the time of Jesus that, um, that mentioned Jesus, and whether in these four extra-biblical accounts are not necessarily Jesus-friendly, uh, but they do acknowledge that there was this guy named Jesus that lived and did all these crazy things. We are also uh, going to talk about the, the historical accuracy of the biblical documents and um, the Bible as we, as we have it today. We're going to actually see how it is believable, how it is verifiable, and how instead of, as a lot of people have seen or think over the years, all oh, the Bible is getting less and less believable as it as it's retranslated, the reality is that it's getting more and more accurate, uh, which is shockingly amazing. We had a, a guy come into our class who is a, an archaeologist. I think it was, man, it was probably three or four months ago. And he um, actually is on site. He is in, uh, where was it? He was in like a dump in Egypt, like pulling apart garbage, looking for old manuscripts because the Egyptians... Um, would just take, would just gather up stuff and use, and when they're making like masks for when they buried people and wrap people up, they would just use whatever paper they could find. And some of that paper um, are these incredibly ancient manuscripts that are getting closer and closer to the actual um, writing of, of, the, of the text. And one person in my class was like, do you, do you ever think that we'll find the original Gospel of John, and he just laughed and didn't really answer that. So I'm assuming that he thinks that that's not going to happen, but I, I don't know. We keep getting closer. He knows more than me. I don't. Know. So anyway, so yes, uh, we're gonna we're gonna touch on why uh, they are believable in in a moment. Uh, so these details are historically accurate and verifiable, and even though they're not provable scientifically, right? We can't go into a lab and make this redo the resurrection. But we have the same kind of proof supporting Jesus and supporting the, the gospel text. Um, and, and we ha all the same kind of proof that supports everything we know about Julius Caesar and, and Abraham Lincoln, Alexander the Great, and any other historical figure. All right? And in actuality, the historical evidence for Jesus is better than anybody would have expected. Because in his time, Jesus was a minor figure, right? He was, I'm, don't take this the wrong way, Jesus was nobody in the middle of nowhere. This place, the, uh, the historians call the armpit of, of the Roman Empire. There's no reason that he would show up in any document, you know? And there's, I didn't, I didn't write this down, but as I was reading, we actually have more um, documentation or mentions of of Jesus, then who is this nobody? Then we do of the Roman emperor of that day. We don't have any, we don't really have any documents from this emperor, um, and yet we have the numerous documents verifying Jesus. So um, uh, that's not cited. You'd have to, that's somewhat true. <laughs> what I said is quasi true. So just getting that out there. It's always good, huh? I'm off my notes. Do, 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 do. Jesus was a minor figure. Do, do, do. Very few people outside of Judea and Galilee would have heard of him. 
Um, and then Dixon says this. Here's a quote from John Dixon. He says, It's frankly surprising that Jesus rates four clear mentions in passing in non-Christian writings from the period. Uh, Geisler and Turek, they actually talk about nine different extra-biblical accounts of, of Jesus. But uh, John Dixon talks about four uh, solid uh, non-Christian writings, and we're going to talk about two of them in particular. First, uh, a Roman historian named Tacitus, who wrote about 115 AD. So within living memory of Jesus, Jesus probably died around 33 uh, AD. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty close. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? And so this guy wrote, you know, just outside of the first century. Um, and he is a Tacitus, uh, this is a quote, is probably the most important historical source from the period from Caesar Tiberius to Nero. So this is, this guy's writings is how we know almost everything we know from uh, Tiberius to Nero. Um, and he writes about the execution of Jesus under Pontius Pilate, uh, which he does while discussing a group called the Christians who had been blamed by Emperor Nero for the great fire in Rome. So I'm just going to read you uh, a bit from Tacitus, and he says this, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. So obviously, Tacitus, not a believer. Um, and apparently not even a big fan of Jesus and the Christians. But this guy who's writing about emperors, writing about these huge, historical, important events, you know, uh, about wars, the, the history of Rome, he takes time to mention what to him would have been just a, a footnote in history. You know, but it gives us evidence that many of the things that we believe about Jesus are historically verifiable. No, this guy was not debating whether Jesus actually existed. And, and that's significant. I remember t uh, Fox Brothers, I was talking to the guy who worked at the de desk next to me, and we, we were, he's an, an atheist, and we were, got on the subject of, of Christianity, and I was like, well, certainly you believe that Jesus actually existed, and he's like, absolutely not. I refuse to believe that Jesus actually existed, and I was like, well, what, I, I don't, what can I do at this point? And I was just like, all right, you know, I was like, do you believe, do you believe in Abraham Lincoln? Do you, you know, do you believe in Napoleon? Like, anyway, so, he really, he really existed. And so, another writer that we want to mention this morning uh, is a Jewish historian named Josephus, who Diane already brought up. And Tacitus, he already brought up, you're, you're so smart. Uh, he was writing a history of the Jewish people uh, during the first century. He wrote probably around the year 90 A.D., and he makes a, a passing reference to a man called Jesus twice. I'm just going to read out of um, Josephus, his book called uh, Jewish Antiquities. It says, the first passage, 
And so he, the high priest, Ananus, 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 convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. And so he mentions Jesus and his brother James. And then the second passage, he says, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. For he was the one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the high, uh, excuse me, when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. And so here, uh, a Jewish man writing a history, again brings up the fact that there's this guy named Jesus who actually lived and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And so we can rest assured that Jesus actually existed. All his serious historians accept that Jesus lived and he died as the Bible claims. They might not believe that he was the Jewish Messiah uh, or that he was the Son of God, but the fact that he lived is incredibly difficult to dispute. And these texts, and there's a couple other ones, uh, help us to know that he did live. But by far the most significant text that, that we have uh, regarding the life and death of Jesus are, of course, the New Testament scriptures. But the question is, can we trust the Bible you know, is it an accurate depiction of what happened during the first century? And Geisler and Turek, our friends, um, they asked two questions of the, the New Testament text. The first question being, do we have accurate copies of the original documents that were written down in the first century? And the second question is, do these documents speak the truth? Okay. Um, so the answer to the first question, do we have accurate copies of the original documents, is yes. Right? Um, and while it's true that we don't have the original documents of the text found in the New Testament, uh, we do have an incredible amount of manuscripts or copies that were written very shortly, not too long after the original documents. There are nearly uh, 5,700 handwritten Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and in addition, there are 9,000 manuscripts in other languages, including uh, Syriac, Coptic, Latin, and Arabic. And some of these nearly 15,000 manuscripts are complete Bibles, others are books or pages, and a few are, are just fragments. Right? And there's the, the next closest ancient text that is documented historically. How do I ask this question? All right, so the Bible has 15,000 manuscripts. All right, the Iliad is the is the book that's most, is the uh, second most documented ancient book, all right? How many copies of Jewish, of uh, Iliad manuscripts do you think there are? There's 15,000 biblical manuscripts. No, there's 643. You're all crazy. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, 
But still, a huge, a huge difference, right? And there, nobody is like, I don't think that Iliad is really how it was originally written. You know, nobody asked that question. Uh, and yet, the, the New Testament manuscripts, the New Testament documents are much more historically verifiable and accurate than any other ancient document. Um, and so because we have all these manuscripts and because we keep finding older and older manuscripts, it's how we know that the, the biblical texts are incredibly well pre- preserved and incredibly accurately passed down through the ages. I mean, it's really, you know, a, another proof of the divinity and the, the plan of God that this book, that these manuscripts would survive the, this long, that they would be found, and that the the book would be so accurately transmitted down, you know, through the ages. And the, I've done just a little bit of reading about the, the, King, the King James Version and, you know, and the, the manuscripts that, that they used are hundreds of years later than the manuscripts that we have today that we use, you know, for more modern translations. And yet we find that it's incredibly close. I mean, they're you know, reality is that there are certain parts, you know, and people have disagreements about a word here or there. Um, there's uh, sections of the manuscripts uh, that they use for the King James Bible that don't exist in some of the earlier manuscripts, right? And so, so that's why you'll see in the end of Mark or that, uh, that um, sometimes it'll like be written in italics or something with like, oh, this isn't in the oldest documents, right? And so, but there's this, that the vast majority of it is shockingly, shockingly accurate. And it's really, really incredible. And uh, what, one interesting thing, that the guy that came to our class a few months ago to talk about it is the, the way they translate from, from the Greek or, or the Hebrew into our current languages that they'll find that word usage in other documents in ancient history. And there's, there's a couple of words um, in the New Testament, that, or in the Bible, I think it's the whole Bible, that they just don't know what the, the Greek word is. I guess if it's a Greek word, it'd be the New Testament. But, and so, and there's actually a word in the, in the, the Lord's Prayer I don't know what the word is. They just don't, it's not used anywhere else in history, and they don't know what it means. So, that, I don't know, I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. And so hopefully, as they're scrounging around dumps in Egypt, that they find some other ancient document that they can verify what this word is. Hopefully it's not, it's all a joke. Sorry, sorry. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's Pastor Cameron, I'm actually less confident now that I've, had, that I've taken Mark's class. It is not going to say that. Oh, goodness. That's right. Oh, you are, you're listening. Um, now, the question is, do these documents that are well-preserved, that are, that are accurately transmitted through the ages, do they actually speak the truth? And the answer, again, is yes. And it would take a very long time to address this completely in this setting, but I think we can kind of, kind of get a big uh, snapshot of it. We can just skim across the surface of it. And if you want more depth, there's a lot of information out there. Again, the Geisler-Turek book is phenomenal. 
So when we're looking at the historical accuracy of an ancient document, Geisler and Turek point out seven questions that must be asked of the texts. All right? um, the first question being, do we have early testimony? Yes, all the New Testament books were written before uh, 100 A.D. So they are all written within living memory of Jesus and the events surrounding his life and his death. The second question is, do we have eyewitness testimony? Again, yes, we have the disciples, Paul, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome. Luke adds Joanna, and he himself, uh, Luke, the writer of Luke and the Acts, he uh, interviewed eyewitnesses when he was creating the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts. He went back to the people who were there and saw, and he, his goal was to write out an orderly understanding of what happened during that time. So we do have eyewitness testimony. The third question, do we have testimony from multiple independent eyewitness sources? Yes, we do, as we have mentioned. Are the eyewitnesses trustworthy? Yes. Is that debatable? Possibly. But as we're going to look, um, all these eyewitnesses were willing to be persecuted, were, were willing to be martyred uh, for their belief that this Jesus was raised from the dead. And it seems that there is very little other reason that they would do that. Now, I think all of the disciples minus one were martyred. Not a single one of them recanted the story in the face of that persecution. And so I think that we can um, confidently believe that their testimony is valid. All right, uh, do we have corroborating evidence from archaeology or other writers? Again, yes, the, the biblical documents were um, talking about events that actually happened. There is a, a pool, uh, the pool of um, Salome, the pool of Siloam where Jesus goes and the, they stir up the waters. And it, up until like, I think it's within the last 10 or 15 years, nobody, nobody believed that this pool actually existed. It couldn't be found in Jerusalem. Um, it couldn't be found anywhere. And they were doing some excavating and they discovered this pool that had the, the seven pillars or however it's described in, in the New Testament documents. They found this pillar. And so we see archaeology continually backing up the truths of scripture. Even when people come up to something, you know, a king or uh, something that is mentioned in the Old Testament or the New Testament that doesn't line up with their understanding, uh, everything that has been discovered has pr proven that the biblical documents are accurate. It's pretty amazing. So even if there's something that is sketchy or questionable, I believe that eventually they will discover that, yeah, oh yeah, that is the truth. Hmm, shocking. Do we have enemy attestation? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Attestation. Yes. Um, we saw that um, in Tacitus. We see that kind of in, in Josephus. We see that in the, the religious leaders and the, the, the Roman soldiers. We see uh, that the, the teachings of, of the Bible are corroborated by enemy attestation. Does the testimony contain events or details that are embarrassing to the authors? Yes, it does. Very much. And so those seven questions uh, are what historians use when they're judging any historical document, not just the Bible 
texts. And so um, a lot of scholars and non-believers look at these documents as historical documents, not as the word of God, but they look at it from a very scientific and a very historical way. And so they, um, that's why we have such, um, so many people just believe these basic things about Jesus, that he lived, he died, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and these kind of things. So the texts are very, very accurate and very, very believable. Except for that one word. What is it? What's that one word? <laughs> oh my God, stop it. Stop it. All right. I'm going to make a note not to say anything about that in Vandalia. Oh. All right. So, oh my goodness. Quickly, Mark. What are the evidences that lead us to believe that Jesus actually was raised from the dead? Scholars agree that there is an incredible historical core to the resurrection story that cannot be explained away as some pious uh, legend or some just deceit that somebody created, all right? Um, the secular study of the resurrection often leads to the conclusion that something happened surrounding Jesus's execution, even if it isn't clear exactly what, all right? And our good friend John Dixon says that there is a resurrection-shaped dent in history, and I just think that I, that is impactful to me. You know, there's a resurrection-shaped dent in history, we cannot prove the, that the resurrection happened with any sort of scientific litmus test, but many of the things that happened and the responses of those close to Jesus could be explained by a, resurrec by a resurrection. So let's first look at the evidence of an empty tomb. All right? The tomb was empty. And this is written by Mark, by John, by Paul, and was first proclaimed in the city where Jesus was executed and was buried. And so the early Christians could not have made this claim in Jerusalem without it being easily verifiable, all right? And we know that it was in Jerusalem that the apostles began preaching Jesus's resurrection. And we also know that from very early on, the Jewish leadership claimed the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus from the tomb. And this is significant. Oh, shocking. Here's another significant thing. It reveals... All right, and this reveals that the first critics of the Christian movement in Jerusalem conceded that the tomb was empty. Yeah. All right, everybody was, nobody was arguing that. All right, and so let's take, let's take a moment to think, what, what could have happened to the body? What are, what are, what are our options? It was stolen. Could have been stolen, Sure. Maybe unlikely. They they lost the tomb. There are a lot of tombs there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's yeah. So oh yeah, and so there's a lot. So surrounding this, there's a lot of uh, questions or things that oh that could have happened or that that. Maybe this or that happened, but the tomb was empty. You know, could the disciples have stolen the body? Did the Jewish leaders dispose of the body? That wouldn't have done them very much good. Did Jesus wake up and, and walk away? And, you know, I think that we can be pretty confident that none of these things are, are true. You know, the disciples, uh, 
this is an interesting quote by a, a Jewish scholar by the name of Giza Verm Vermez um, regarding, you know, could, he's trying to answer the question, could the disciples have stolen the body? Um, and he says, the rumor that the apostles stole the body is most improbable. From the psychological point of view, they would have been too depressed and shaken to be capable of such a dangerous undertaking. But above all, since neither they nor anyone else expected a resurrection, there would have been no purpose in faking it. Um, and so I, I like that. I thought that was really interesting. Amber didn't buy it. She didn't like that one, but that's okay. Um, so, she didn't, she didn't. so you see, Amber watches these, these movies where people under extreme duress do these amazing things. And so I think she saw the disciples as like this SWAT team that was ready <laughs> to, go, to go into action and go get that body. But, and as, as we're going to look, even if that was true, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. It makes very little sense. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, did the Jewish leaders dispose of the body? No, because it would have been the easiest way to kind of quash this Jesus heresy, is if they would be like, hey, here's the body right here. All right? And the... It's unlikely that the Romans would have done anything with the body um, because the, the Roman guards, they were actually, you know, when the body was, uh, went missing, the, the Jewish leaders actually paid them money and said, hey, keep this quiet. And when this leaks out, which it will, we'll protect you because the, those Roman guards knew they're going to be in serious trouble uh, that they let somebody steal this body. And so we see even from the earliest days that the question wasn't, was the tomb empty? The tomb was absolutely empty. Um, I think I can skip some of this stuff. We talked about that. Uh, and we can also safely trust in the fact that there were a lot of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And as we discussed in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions that he saw the resurrected Christ, as did many others, the, like the 12. Um, 500 people at once um, saw the Bible. And so Jesus revealed himself, the resurrected Jesus revealed himself to a lot of people. But can these testimonies be believed? Um, so let's look. Let's look at some of these eyewitnesses. The Gospels agree that the first witnesses were women. Um, and so the Gospel of Luke says that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. And the fact that women were the, the first eyewitnesses is actually really strong evidence for the truthfulness of the, the biblical record. And the reason is that during this time, uh, the, the testimony of women was not something that you would use if you were trying to make people believe 
something. Our, our friend Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote, From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. So, um, and then there's another ancient document uh, from Palestine that says, The law governing an oath of testimony applies to men and not to women, to those who are suitable to bear witness and not to those who are unsuitable to bear witness. All right? And so given kind of the general consensus that women's testimony was not valid or believable or usable, it seems unlikely that when they, the disciples, when the Christ followers were creating their myth, they, were, they would be like, hey, let's have women be the first people that, that saw Jesus. That just wouldn't make any sense from their first century perspective. All right? And so another reason why I believe the testimony of the other eyewitnesses like the 12, and this is what we've mentioned this before, is that they literally had nothing to gain and everything to lose by proclaiming Jesus' resurrection. Um, this is a quote from Dixon. They experienced social estrangement, loss of property, loss of religious status, certainly in the case of Paul, imprisonment, whippings, and even death. And these men were willing to die for the belief that Jesus was no longer dead. The disciples, before the resurrection, were scared, and they, they're hiding, they're, they're nervous, you know, and they, when, when Jesus is arrested, we see them scatter, right? And so these guys are, are not this, the, the bold um, evangelist that we see just days after the, the resurrection. We see them out in the streets proclaiming Jesus, like going into the faces of, of the, the religious leaders saying, this Jesus who you crucified, very, very bold. And it, it, like what explains that change in these guys' lives outside of a resurrection? And so, to me, that is really significant. And finally, uh, we have the Apostle Paul, who claimed to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Um, he was vehemently opposed to the claims of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. And he was, his job, his mission was literally to stamp out this heresy, this Christian heresy. So what would explain this radical change in attitude and in mission? You know, what would explain moving from stamping out the belief uh, that, uh, you know, stamping out this belief in Christ to being possibly, probably the most significant missionary that, you know, took the story of Jesus to the ends of the world. You know, there was no benefit for him to switch sides. And he lost everything and he was killed because of this testimony of Jesus. And there's one other thing that I forgot to mention that, that the texts talk about Jesus revealing himself to over 500 people at one time, you know, and some people say, oh, it was just a, a mass delusion. Um, but there's actually no scientific proof that mass delusions are, are possible. And so the fact that Jesus revealed himself in the same way to a bunch of people all at the same time, and these people were still alive during the writings of these documents, that if you wanted to test out these things that Luke was writing, or the things that Paul was writing, you could go down to Jerusalem and ask people that were there and witnessed these things. So this stuff is incredibly historically verifiable. Um, do, do, do. I think that is it. Does anybody have any questions about historical authenticity? All right. 
We're going to take a short break, and then we will come for an abbreviated session two, three. Session three. No questions, Eric? Mm. You know, my Amber asked me the exact same thing, and I was going to to look it up. Um, I don't I don't know. He was he was very close when he tried to date things back to to Jesus. He was just a few years off because um, uh, Jesus is commonly believed. I think he was born in three or four A.D. and not zero A.D. Okay. B.C. I could, that's probably right. It's, re, it's right in that, right in that, that place, right in that area. Yeah, baby. Resurrection-shaped dent. Oh, look at that. You made it. You made a dent. That's cool. Yeah, and that looks exciting. I'm having, I'm having a good time. Thanks, buddy. You're a good friend. I like all the mints. You finished off those mints? All right. How are you doing? Great. I like that. I just You like that? Some people really like to write. It helps them remember things. I learned that somewhere. Speaking of telling the disciples, you get 500 people and they all say the same story. Yeah. That's you can ask Aaron or a priest, you know, whatever. So you get 500 people see the same thing. Yeah. You get 500 different stories. Yeah, absolutely. That they all just said the just same. Taking that small part. Yeah. That's that's ex it's really exciting, I think. You know, looking at this and, and like I said, you know, it, it radically. I d I grew up in the church and I don't ever remember anybody ever talking about this. Mm -hmm. Like it was just kind of assumed that we were going to believe in Jesus, right. but there's well, well, let's not worry about why we believe or that. And it never came up, and so it's really exciting for me, and I feel like I'm just learning i'm just kind of scratching the surface of this as i kind of dig into it and it's been really fun so you go out and interview 500 people they all tell the same thing what are you going to get typically yeah 500 different stories yeah yep so that's so when you get that many the same it's definitely some evidence there yeah it's just interesting to look at it from that perspective though that everything so similar. Even when you talk about the manuscripts all being so in line, it's just—it's hard to discredit that. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it make it makes complete sense that the as those guys are hand copying those manuscripts, mm -hmm. that they make they're going to make mistakes, and it's going to get worse and worse over time. You know, yeah. like that, like that just makes sense, and I think it throws a lot of people out, and I think that. There's a lot of confusion about the Bible. There's a guy, another guy at Fox Brothers, that I, I'm pretty confident that he has no understanding that there are ancient manuscripts and that people just like found this King James Bible or something and they've just been translating from that yeah. and just changing the stuff they don't like. And I'm just like, you have no idea what the how the Bible exists or I why mean, it exists. It's, it's literally a, a miracle that that happened. I yeah. mean, even if you look at today when looking at historical events or even like news, you, you read, you know, four or five different news stories, they're all going to have little differences or major differences, you know? Yeah. In this, you see everything 
on point. You know, it's yeah. Just a miracle. Yeah. So, so amazing. So fun. I think of if, if God had ever small and preserving translations and copies. I would imagine that he, that he did. You you do you mean do I think that he like made them disappear and and appear in pots in Qumran? No, I mean, well, I mean like some people think that you know like divinely inspired. Can they also be somewhat divinely copied? Oh, oh like, like we're the oh. we're the copiers. Yeah. Divine. Sort of. Yeah, I think I think to to a certain extent. I mean, certainly there are. Little little mistakes that are made in in different manuscripts, but the fact that you know that they you know devoted their entire life to this and so accurately for thousands of years preserved these documents or hundreds of years at least I think, yeah, thousands of years. Do we owe these copiers our thanks? For I I. <laughs> or do we? Is it somewhat God? Who well, I think I think I think that it, I think that it's both. I think that that was you know God throughout history uses man to do what he could do on his own. And so that, that's just what he just trusts us with the, I mean, it's really crazy the things that he trusts us to do. Like instead of like him telling people about the good news, about the gospel of, of spreading um, the gospel, he entrusts that to us. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> he probably shouldn't do that, you know? But, you know, the, he, that's just what, that's, that's what he does. You know, he trusts us to do that. And so that he passed that off to these guys and he gave them the, the grace to, to do it accurately. You know, I think it's a I think it's a combination of the two. I've never really thought about it, but that's my initial that's my initial thought. Well, if we're gonna finish on time, I guess I better start again. Mm-hmm. Alright, this 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 session is, is fun. I'm excited about this session. The other ones didn't like. Just kidding. That's a joke. I liked him. That was a joke. So, how are we supposed to li- live out the gospel today? All right. And as we touched on uh, in, as, at the beginning, you know, the, I think that the gospel is a lot bigger than you and I getting saved and eventually getting our, our way into heaven. And for sure, the central event of all of history is that Jesus, the Son of God, came and died to provide a way for salvation, for you and for me. Uh, But salvation brings us into this grand story, this grand drama of redemption that has been happening throughout all of history. All of creation, all the cosmos are moving towards this consummation. They're moving towards this redemption. And they're longing for this second coming uh, of Jesus. And Paul, in the letter to the Romans, uh, this is, uh, oh, I have it written, chapter 8, starting in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but, we, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so we are drawn into this story that God is telling. And it's not just about me, and it's not just about you, it's not just about New Day, but the entire creation, all of the cosmos, uh, you know, and Paul here kind of gives the creation this, uh, uh, what do you call it when you give something personified? There you go. You know, this idea that the creation is longing. It, is, it can't wait to, for it to, to be redeemed and to be able to throw off this corruption, to be able to throw off this death, and to be able to live in the fulfillment of the resurrection. Right? And this story has been going on since way back in Genesis 3, like we mentioned. You know, and God is moving and he is weaving the thread of redemption through all of history. And certainly that culminates in, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is our salvation. And he is the one who loves us. And he is the one who draws us into that relationship. But it's, it's bigger than just you and just me. All right, this grand story of resurrection is not merely about you and I getting to heaven when we die, but it's about you and I being caught up in this story that's being told in history, this story of all creation moving towards redemption. And Jack Hayford, uh, in one of these books, his Bible handbook is really, really good. He says, The gospel is not a new plan of salvation. It is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan of salvation, which was conceived before time, established in Abraham's seed, completed in Jesus Christ, and now made known by the living church. We are the the tool that God is using to present the story of the gospel to the world. You know, and we're going to look at that a little bit more closely in a second. Well, when we believe the good news of Jesus Christ, we become players in this drama. You know, and, and we all have a, a part. But what is that part? What are we supposed to do? How do we live out this incredibly good news? And an author by the name of Daryl Guter, uh, he wrote this. Um, this is a really difficult book to read, but it's really, really good. We read this in the last class uh, uh, is a class about the missional movement and the idea that the church is, uh, has, a, has a purpose of, of being missional, not hiding inside of a church, but spreading this good news and taking this news outside of, of the four walls. It's an incredibly good book, and I would recommend you read it if you like reading things there. I had to read it. I paid money. They made me read it. So, um, so but he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ defines a new reality under God, in which Jesus Christ has power in heaven and earth, and his followers are his sent and empowered witnesses. And you and I, as Christ followers, are sent ones. We are empowered witnesses of the truth. And we cannot live the same way that we lived prior to our salvation. We are to be witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Certainly that is the central event of all of history. But we are called into a relationship with that event in that we are the ones that God uses to continue to spread this good news. All right? And so I really quickly, this um, really impacted me when I learned this. And it's the, the story of God's symbols. And it's just a really easy way when we are trying to communicate 
the, the history of God or the story of, that God is telling in history. And I, uh, when I, I learned it at a, at a conference up at Calvin in December, and I came home and I wrote these symbols out on, on our dry erase calendar that we have on our, um, our refrigerator. And I was like, Amber, look at this. This, like, this is the story of the gospel here in these, in these six symbols. All right, and so if anybody has ever asks you, hey, what's, what's the gospel or what's the good news, you know, you, and you can use these symbols to kind of show them the story that God is telling throughout history. So the down arrow is creation, all right? We've talked about that. I talked about that a couple weeks ago uh, on Sunday morning, that, that God created everything that we see. He created everything that we can't see. He created us to live in perfect relationship with him. He created us to live in perfect relationship with creation. And even in that place, it wasn't good enough. He wanted us to have relationship with each other. You know, there's this idea that we were created for community. That, I'm so excited about community right now. That's not in my notes. But I, I just, like, I don't, it, there's this, this idea that we have been so inundated with this individualistic, that it's all about me culture, that the idea that God created us for relationship and said, it's not good for you to be alone, that, that's blowing me away right now. Anyway, so we'll talk more about that tomorrow morning. Um, then the X is the fall, and we see the fall from Genesis 3 um, through Genesis 11 for sure, uh, but really, you know, the fall continues through all uh, of the Old Testament and beyond. Um, the arrow pointing to the right, this is the promise, all right? We see this happen in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham. What does he say to Abraham? He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and that wasn't it. He said, and you will be a blessing to all of the earth. And so God, his plan, his purpose, ever since, uh, you know, talking to, when he promised Eve in, in the garden after the fall in Genesis 3.15, that your seed is going to bring redemption. You are going to crush the enemy. This sin, this fallen nature, this is not the end of the story. All right? And then in Genesis 12, he passes the torch on to Abraham and to the Israelites. And so the Israelites have this purpose. They have this reason to be alive. They are going to be the ones that bless the world. God is going to use them to bless all of the world. And so the, the arrow, the right arrow, the first right arrow, the, the promise, this is basically all of the, the Old Testament uh, from Genesis 12 on. This is Israel supposing to, their job is to be a blessing. And we see them mess up all the time. We see, you know, the corruption and the sin and the death and all this horrible stuff happening around them. They don't do a great job of being a blessing to the world. But even through all of that, we see this thread of redemption being woven through it. We, and I'm going to talk a lot, a lot about that tomorrow. This idea that God, we see these glimmers of hope. We see these glimmers of promise throughout the Old Testament documents that God has not forgotten about his people. The cross, of course, is Jesus. It speaks of redemption. This is the, the, the central event of all of history, right? This is what, uh, you know, the promise led up to this. All the, the prophecies and promises about the Messiah, the Christ, are fulfilled in, in, in Jesus, in the redemption. But that is not the end of the story, 
right? This is not the end of the story. And we see there's another right-hand arrow there. And this is the time of the church. This is where you and I are living. This takes place everything from Acts up till the, the current time, right? Jesus sends the church. And this is where we fit in. This is where our community fits in, where we, the church, are supposed to take the truth of the gospel out into the world. We're not supposed to bunker down and hide inside of our churches or hide inside of you know, our houses or whatever it is and just only hang out with safe people because it's safe and, you know, and eventually we will go to heaven. You know, we are sent. We are empowered witnesses. We are sent ones. Uh, and that is, that is who we are. That is what we are supposed to do. And the, the last arrow is restoration. Just as God created perfect creation at, at the beginning of history, in the second coming, when Jesus comes back during the consummation, this world is going to be made new. And you and I are going to live in a new world that is perfect, without the sin, without the death, without the corruption that is filling this present evil age. And we look forward to that. And our hope is that as sent ones, as empowered witnesses, we, we show people Jesus and we point them to where we're heading. You know, and that is what we are called to do. But when we're living as witnesses, how do we do it? What does it look like? And I used to believe that good Christians become pastors. <laughs> Um, or some sort of, of, of vocational ministry. But that just isn't true, um, all right? Uh, nor would it be a very good way for us to be witnesses if we were all just had our own little church, hiding in our little church. You know, it wouldn't be a very good way to be witnesses to Jesus. Um, but to be sure, you know, all of us have been called into ministry. We're all called to be sent and empowered witnesses. But we do this in our real lives, and I, I don't believe that it has to be standing on a street corner on, on a soapbox proclaiming uh, the coming of Jesus or proclaiming that you're all sinners and you're all going to burn in hell. You know, but we actually live this out in our day-to-day -day lives. And this is another thing that has really been incredibly powerful for me over, over the last few months is I've really kind of got this idea that being a Christian— and living for God doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be a pastor. It doesn't mean that I'm going to go to Africa to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't mean that I am going to pass out tracts. It doesn't mean that, you know, I don't, you know, whatever this kind of our weird idea of what Christianity means. We are called to be Christians in our lives when we are parenting, when we go to work, when we, um, you know, go to the grocery store in everything we do. We are supposed to be uh, witnesses to the gospel. All right, um, there's a quote. I don't know where I put that quote. Maybe it's because I'm not there yet. Ten minutes. No problem. Okay. Um, we're sent and empowered witnesses. Check. Um, so when we look at the New Testament writings, all right, we find that they're not just theological treaties, like we talked about a, a little bit ago, but they're letters written to real people at, at a, with real problems in, in a real time. And we see that all of, you know, especially when we look at the letters of Paul, the epistles, that he's writing to these people, and, he has, and we turn them all into, into theology. We turn them all into these kind of big, high-minded ideas, which there's a lot of that in there. But 
there's always a part, and we talked about this when we talked about the Romans road in Romans 12, that there's this point where Paul moves from these big high-minded ideas and says, this is how it impacts your life. This is how you're supposed to live. You know, and certainly there's times where we, we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to preach the gospel and we're supposed to do these missionary kind of things. But a lot of this stuff, a lot of the, the application that Paul writes about is just living lives well. It's being a good father. It's being a good husband. You know, it's being a good employee. You know, it's being, you know, uh, a good citizen. Like, this is how we are supposed to share the gospel. This is how we live missionally. And certainly, it's really important that we understand the gospel. We understand that it's about Jesus, and we, we are ready to proclaim the good news because you have to proclaim the good news for people to get saved. But we prepare ourselves, we live our lives in such a way that it gives us a platform from which to proclaim the good news, from which that somebody is ready to receive from us that I am a witness to Jesus Christ who lived and who died and was resurrected, and I look forward to this eternal hope because he's coming again, and all of the garbage of this evil age is going to be swept away, and we're going to live in this beautiful time, in this beautiful place, in perfect relationship with God. And we by living well, gives us a platform to do that. All right? And so we should live our lives as best we can to live for God's glory, to be witnesses of what he has done in our lives. And we are now, and I keep I'm hammering this home, I guess, but we are sent and empowered to reveal Jesus where we live. Since we are now in this story, we looked at the, the story symbols, we're in the story, we are called to be salt and light. You know, we are to be the witnesses pointing people towards the truth of the gospel. We are holy people. And you got, what does holy mean? What? Set apart. We are set apart. We are supposed to be different. We are supposed to live different lives because we are telling a different story. We are living in a different kingdom. Okay? And so we are... We are living as Christ followers. We are living from kingdom principles. We are living from the attributes of God right now in, in this world, even though we see around us that we must still be in that sinful, fallen, evil age. The, and there, I have a, a diagram in the handout. The, the Israelites, they had this understanding that there is this evil age that we were living in this evil age from sin until the Messiah came, and it was uh, full of, you know, anger and hate and death and corruption. And someday a Messiah was going to come, and he was going to restore Israel. He was going to restore and rebuild this world, and so that the nation of Israel would rule, and therefore they would be able to be a blessing to the whole world. And so they had this expectation when Jesus came that he was going to be this militaristic Messiah that came and overthrew the oppression uh, of the Romans, but he didn't do that. And we see, as we look in history, if Jesus really was the, was the Messiah, well, he doesn't seem like he's brought this, this new age that the, 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 the prophets talk about. And so as we understand where we are in history, the reality was more, more, is more similar to this second picture here, right? There's this evil age that we all live in, you know, fall, 
happened. Sin enters in. There's corruption. There's death. There's destruction. There's all this tough stuff. But Jesus comes in the midst of this evil age, and he says, now is the kingdom. Now is the time. You know, if you're seeing me, you are entering into the kingdom. All right? And so there's this overlap, right? Because we can still look around and we still see evidence of an evil age. We still see evidence of corruption all around us. And yet you and I are sent and empowered witnesses. We are living in this in-between area, right? We are tapped into this new age. We can, can reach into this new age and pull all that goodness, all the healing and the restoration from the new kingdom, and we can pull that into our daily lives. And like that is, is mind-blowing. And that is what we are called to do. When we are at the grocery store, when we are doing whatever it is that we're doing, we are a light and we can bring that new kingdom. We can bring the kingdom of God into our present reality. And, and I just want to end with, there's this one Guter quote. That's real. No, it was uh, Chris Gonzalez and Tyler Johnson. They uh, spoke at this conference in Calvin. And they said, the mission field is anywhere that faith meets unbelief. And like, that is incredible to me. Like, the mission field is anywhere that faith meets unbelief. And so as we understand the gospel, as we understand that Jesus died for us, he is, uh, there is a plan of God to restore all of creation, that we can bring the reality of this new kingdom inaugurated by Christ we can bring that into every aspect of our lives. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to preach to everybody at our workplace or we're going to stand up on the cafeteria table at school and say, you need to believe in Jesus, it's going to be great. You know, but just by living good lives, we are bringing faith, we are bringing light into a place where there is unbelief, where there is doubt, where there is fear, and where this evil age has still got its claws into people's lives. All right? And I, let me see here. I cover most things. Let's just end with John 14, 12 through 17. It says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And so as we confess Jesus, as we believe him, as we follow his commandments, as we live out of this new kingdom, Jesus says that whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and even greater things. And so we see, you know, Jesus healing the sick. We see Jesus casting out demons. We see Jesus clearly and accurately hearing God's voice. And because of the Holy Spirit in us, we have been empowered. We have been sent to do those same things. And, and I think that as significant is we have been empowered to live well, to be good friends, to be good neighbors, to be good employees, to be good parents. You know, in this, it is going to be a witness to all the world, and we can sh- give, it gives us a platform from which to share the gospel. Amen. Look at that. Four minutes.
Thank you. Uh, has, does anybody have any questions or thoughts? Doesn't have to be a question. Yes, uh, Roxanne. I'll I'll first. You were first, Diane. Yeah. Diane first. Uh -oh. But <laughs> I think the position that you were in growing up would be very common to church people that they feel like they are saved because they've always been in church. Right. And yet, if you just can't pinpoint a time, a day, a moment when you accepted Christ, where does that leave you? Yeah. I think that. I think that I think that's true that we do you know for sure I uh, grew up in in the church and and did I make a decision I probably probably didn't and that there there's this idea that I have to have this radical experience that and that not isn't necessarily the the case but there does have to be a time where it's where you say you know what I'm going to take this seriously and I'm I'm going to choose to live my life based on this and. And you do have to make a decision. You can't just roll into it. Yeah. So I think that's true. And my second thing is something that I've had issue with for quite a while now, a couple of years, is just simply the use of the word glory. And you brought out why. I think we should, um, we should try really consciously to change that word to let me recount to you the events that happened. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's Not good. Tell you the story of. Right. Because we are growing up with kids that have a lot of um, exposure to stories, but when you say you're recounting events right. that happened, well, their brain hears it in a different way. Yep. I wish I never heard the word story in church, unless it's a story. Yeah, I think that's good. Awesome. Thank you. Roxanne? Right. And the, the, uh, it's just been, I feel that, not here, of course, but in my family, I, alone. And um, I have been blessed because of this coming forward, because everything I read confirms that Jesus is the only way. Yeah. Yeah. And and not to save us from the Father. Right. But, but to show us who he really is and how much he loves us. But that there is a genuine consequence if you do not put your faith in Jesus. Yeah. That he says what he says. And so um I am I would love 
do need is to see the right things. I've even been asked by one of my daughters to not post so many Christian things on Facebook because um, it embarrasses her. Her, her grandparents didn't watch, are my friends, and she doesn't want them to think I'm crazy. So, um, and another daughter has told me to back off, but I'm like, I said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, you don't have to. Yeah. So, um, there's, there's that, and then the other thing is, I was looking up holy in the dictionary, and I loved what it said. It said, anything coming from or belonging to God, hmm. and that is being set apart. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm holy. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Well, hopefully, some of the material that we covered today will be will be helpful. You know, and I think that there's this. You know, there's that's a very common idea that you know Jesus is one way to the to the Father. You know, and you know what whatever. But Jesus doesn't allow like that's not he doesn't allow that to be an option. And if we look at that Jesus actually lived, that he actually died, and that it's incredibly likely that he was actually, you know, you and I would believe that he actually raised from the dead, but, you know, there's a lot of evidence pointing that he raised from the dead, and if that is true, it um, validates the words that he spoke, and so then, all right, he rose from the dead, he's out, maybe we should listen to this guy, what did he say? He doesn't, he doesn't, this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, you know, nobody comes to the Father except through me. And he just, it's just not, it's just not an option. So we will pray for you. In Christian times, people were going for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead and that he existed. And now it seems like persecution is coming if you say Jesus is the only way. Absolutely. It absolutely is. So, awesome, thanks. Molly, do you have a question? Job, yep. Yeah, that that book takes a turn. Oh, awesome. All right, well, thank you all for coming. If you have any other questions or comments, I would... Um, love to, to answer them or if there's something that, that we could do if we ever offered this class again that would be beneficial just let us know you know I want to do the best I can for the church and and you know do what I can to my heart is to, to pastor people into life to help people to live lives well so thank you thank you, thank you.